Hello and welcome to COVIDcast, a Lowy Institute podcast for anyone interested in understanding the effects of coronavirus on the world and international life. My name is Hervé Lameilleux and I'm the director of the Power and Diplomacy program at the Lowy Institute in Sydney. Today, it's my pleasure to sit down with a fine colleague and friend, Ben Bland. Ben is the director of the Southeast Asia program here in Sydney at the Lowy Institute. He was an award-winning foreign correspondent for the Financial Times before joining us with postings in Hanoi, Hong Kong, and Jakarta. His second book, which has just been launched, is called Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia. It's published by Penguin and it's available for purchase on our website. It is the first English language biography of Jokowi and really offers a compelling narrative into the life and times of this enigmatic leader and through him of contemporary Indonesia, a nation still in the making 75 years after declaring independence. So without further ado, let's hear directly from the author himself. Ben, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you, have I? Now, in your book, you describe how you first met Jokowi in 2012 as a fresh-faced journalist newly arrived in Indonesia. At that time, I think Jokowi was halfway through what was really a meteoric rise from furniture maker in the town of Solo in central Java to the presidency of the fourth most populous nation on earth. Tell us about his climb to power, as you say, accidentally on purpose. How did he do that? Well, I landed in Indonesia as someone who'd studied Indonesian politics before at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Um, but this was really my first experience reporting on the ground. And I was lucky to be thrust into this energetic election campaign where Jokowi was the guy who, is, as he put it, was going to get to power through the head and the heart, not just through the money politics and the corruption that's the norm, particularly then in, in Indonesian elections. So he was really a change maker at the time. And I think my timing was quite fortunate in seeing his campaign in the midst of this rise. He was still the mayor of Solo, his hometown at that time. And then very quickly, he was elected as governor of Jakarta. And just two years later, he became the president. So in nine years, he went from being a small town furniture maker whose only international experience was going to these furniture expos and hawking his uh, chairs and tables and the like to foreign buyers. He went from there to the presidency of Indonesia. And he did this mostly by pitching himself as an outsider, uh, a guy who would shake up the system, who, unlike the other elite politicians who dominated politics, he would go to the ground, he would listen to people, he was personally clean, he did things simply. And most of all, he had this amazing connection with Indonesian voters. I've met so many politicians in so many countries over the years, and most of them are faking it to make it. Jokowi had this real connection with people. He electrified the campaign in Jakarta without really even saying much. So I sensed there was something special there. And that's really what prompted me to, to write this book. Interesting. Now, Jokowi is, of course, uh, he's finished his first term. Uh, he was elected in 2014. He's into his second term. He was re-elected in 2019. And perhaps the biggest crisis in both terms has been the emergence of uh, COVID-19. There's a health pandemic, but also in terms of its economic contagion on Indonesia's economy. Tell us a little bit more about the cracks uh, that have started to form in his leadership as he's been exposed to the challenges of COVID-19. You write in your book that his government has really demonstrated many of its worst traits. Uh, how do you explain that? There's this famous line in politics that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
Robert Caro, the, the famous US biographer, put it slightly differently. He said that power reveals. And I think that's exactly what's happened with Jokowi, that as he's risen up the ranks from mayor of a small town to governor of the national capital to the president of Indonesia, we've really seen the true Jokowi, both you know, the good side, which I think is his gut instincts for retail politics, his focus on the economy, but also his weaknesses, which I think are the flip side of that instinct. So he takes decisions sometimes on a whim. He doesn't really like analysis. He likes action. He doesn't want to listen to long-winded explanations. He just goes with whatever he feels is right. And unfortunately, that's exactly the wrong mix, I think, of characteristics for managing a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic, which is so complex from the, the public health angle to the economic angle, and particularly for a country like Indonesia, uh, which already had a very overstrained health system and an economy that was starting to slow before the pandemic hit. So Jokowi has really been flapping around in the crisis. Initially, he denied that there was a problem. He seemed to think it was some sort of economic opportunity. If China and other countries were down because of the pandemic, Indonesia could be up. The government hasn't been fully transparent with the data. And now in the last few months, we've seen the caseload in Indonesia start to rise quite dramatically. So we're at a point where Indonesia is really a laggard in Southeast Asia. More than 8,000 people have already died, according to the official numbers. And the real figures are probably far worse because Indonesia has one of the lowest testing rates for COVID-19 anywhere in the world. So we don't really know truly how bad things are. Um, but I do think Jokowi is a pragmatist and he has the ability to balance, to change tack when things change. And that's my hope, because at the moment he's done a pretty poor job of tackling the pandemic. And the economy is also heading into its first recession since the Asian financial crisis more than 20 years ago. Mm. So Jokowi's style of governing on the fly um, has both benefits, but obviously obvious limitations, um, as appears to be the case uh, in recent months as a result of the pandemic. Now, you tell us uh, in the book a lot about Jokowi's political philosophy, which is really embedded in a sort of pragmatism around getting economic results. Tell us a little bit more about how this drives his view of foreign policy as well and, and economic diplomacy. What is he most interested in when it comes to uh, his engagement with the outside world? Well, it's a really interesting question because there's so much expectation on Jokowi's Indonesia, in Australia, in, in the policy world, in Canberra, also in Washington, D.C., but it's the same in, in Beijing and in Tokyo, right? There's a lot of expectation that Indonesia will be this really important actor in, in Asia. It can shift the balance of power as such a big country, such a big economy with a lot of potential to grow economically and in terms of its broader power dynamics, which you know about much better than I do. Uh, with the power index. So there's there's so much hope there. But I think Jokowi sees things very differently. He really has the furniture maker's view of the world, which is the world is effectively a market for Indonesia to sell its products to. And it's also a place for Indonesia to get investment from. So I think this is best understood by something that happened not long after Jokowi had been sworn in as president in 2014. So he went to Myanmar, to Naypyidaw, uh, for the first big international outing. It was the East Asia Summit. And Jokowi's advisors wanted to have something to announce. And they pushed this idea of Indonesia becoming a global maritime fulcrum, which was really quite a thin idea for Indonesia to step up as a diplomatic player in the region, while also becoming an economic power in, in maritime terms. So there was something there, but it wasn't really fleshed out. 
And on the plane back to Jakarta, Indonesian journalists asked Jokowi what he really meant by this, what his foreign policy really was. And he talked about you know, what's the point in having all these friends unless we have benefits. This was a reference to the previous president, President Yudhoyono's policy of a thousand friends and no enemies or a million friends and no enemies, depending on how friendly he and the world were feeling. And Jokowi's point of view was, what's the point in being friendly with everyone? We need investment. We need money to push our economy forward. And without that, all this talk is meaningless. So friends with benefits, that's really how Jokowi sees the world. I guess you might call it mercantilism in a sense. Um, so it's very, very pragmatic. He wants to work with those countries and those companies who have the most money to offer Indonesia with the fewest conditions. If Jokowi's foreign policy is best understood, um, as you put it, as a reflection of his um, domestic politics, what then does that tell us about his relationship with Beijing? It's clear that uh, Jokowi has had to carefully balance his desire for, on the one hand, no strings attached investment uh, from, uh, from China through the Belt and Road Initiative, and at the same time, the relatively high domestic suspicion of Chinese economic dominance in Indonesia. How does Jokowi walk this tightrope? It's not unique to Indonesia for foreign policy to be driven by domestic politics. I think it's the case in, in most countries, including here in Australia, certainly in many of the nations of Southeast Asia, which are facing a lot of domestic issues, a lot of economic issues, health issues, even before COVID-19, as well as internal security issues that we have to look to the domestic to really understand what's driving their external engagement. The China question is really interesting because it is more complicated for Jokowi, of course, than purely friends with benefits. Indonesia is lucky in a sense compared to its Southeast Asian neighbors in that it's far away from China and it doesn't have the extent of, of diplomatic and potentially military uh, conflicts and disputes as some other nations like Vietnam, the Philippines, Myanmar. But there is, unfortunately for Indonesia, this small overlap between China's nine-dash line claim in the South China Sea and Indonesia's exclusive economic zone in the north of the Natuna Sea. And that has led to a number of incidents in recent years. So at times, Jokowi does have to show this hard line on Indonesia's sovereignty. That's important in domestic politics to show that he will defend Indonesian territory from outsiders trying to take Indonesia's resources. So that is important. On the other hand, Jokowi is desperate to keep the Chinese investment dollars flowing into Indonesia. And so he has to play a quite a delicate balancing act. And he thinks the best way to do this, and he may well be right, is to play down the great power politics. Unlike you know, Australia's prime minister and some other leaders in the region, he doesn't give big speeches about the changing dynamics. Unlike Lee Sien Leung in Singapore, Jokowi doesn't want to write long pieces for foreign policy and foreign affairs about how Singapore sees the world. Jokowi wants to focus on the practical. So when needs be, he will show that he's willing to defend Indonesian sovereignty. And at other times, he'll focus quietly on bringing in the investment dollars. But it is tricky, not least because of the long history in Indonesia of violence and really oppression against the small but quite important ethnic Chinese community. So there, it is a very delicate balancing act, not just in the external aspect, but domestically too. And I think by and large, he's done a decent job of, of managing what's really quite a tricky environment. And I, I don't want to do down his policy when I say friends with benefits. It's not a trifling thing. It, it's important. It's important to develop the economy. And I think he takes these issues very seriously. He just doesn't look at it through the lens of great power politics. He looks at it through the lens of protecting Indonesia's economy and ultimately giving jobs 
uh, and safety and better environment for Indonesian voters. Mm. That takes us really to um, Australia's great hopes and expectations in the rise of Indonesia as a, as a great power, not only in Southeast Asia, but potentially also within the broader Indo-Pacific in terms of uh, potentially one day contributing to a balance of power that uh, or a military and strategic counterweight that can um, balance against the rise of China and, and the excesses of its power. Um, do you think that Jokowi, and we, we've also heard in recent days that there's been some movement in terms of uh, a minilateral block, a, a new trilateral arrangement between India, Australia, Indonesia, all three of whom have uh, Indian Ocean interests, uh, to regularly consult at the leadership level in terms of um, their defense and, and foreign ministers, but also to engage in, uh, in trilateral maritime exercises. Do you think that Australia is right uh, to place as much hope in uh, Indonesia coming through, as it were, and starting to play a bigger role in our region in terms of uh, a balance against China? I think Australia is right to work really hard to improve the Indonesian relationship, which I think is as good as it's been in a long time. I think that's that's great and important. And in fact, I think there needs to be more effort made to continue developing that that relationship because these are two countries that are so close geographically and yet so different economically, politically, socially and culturally. So I think that's all good. But I do think there does need to be a slightly more realistic understanding of Indonesia's position in the world. Um, while Jokowi has at the margins taken a more mercantilist approach in his foreign policy, I would say, by and large, he has stuck to this the core tenet of Indonesia's view of the world, which is that it must remain free and independent. So above all, what's most important is maintaining strategic autonomy and non-alignment. So Indonesia feels it needs to stay out of any pressure to choose sides. And so there is a reluctance to go far down engagements with any one path. Indonesia is certainly not interested in having any military alliances or even military basing arrangements. But it is interested in cooperating more with the Australian Defence Forces, with, with the Americans, with others too, because it knows it needs some sort of, of balance. My concern, if, if you like, is that in focusing so much on being free and active or free and independent, Indonesia starts to look passive and constrained because the world around us is changing so fast. And by taking a step back, there's a risk that Indonesia is left behind. So I think the greater risk, rather than Indonesia becoming this key balancing power, is that Indonesia steps out of, of the game because it's focused internally on all these domestic issues, and, and very understandably so. And that there's, there'll be a lot of disappointment that Indonesia won't be the balancing force that, that some hope. But there, there are signs of movement and there are debates. When I was in Jakarta last year researching this trilateral relationship, between Indonesia, Australia and India, there are those Indonesian diplomats and in those in the defense world who want to see Indonesia take a slightly tougher stance on China, be more willing to go deeper in partnerships with its key friends. But then there are those who worry that if you know, Indonesia is doing more with, with India and Australia, how can they say no to Beijing when they come saying they want more military engagement? So I think that's the balance that Indonesia is trying to get. And it's very fragile. So recently we saw some coverage in the Indian press about this trilateral relationship. And they, I, I think, mistakenly framed this be, as all being about an alliance against China, even though firstly it's not an alliance. It's just a trilateral partnership and talks. And it's not 
purely aimed at China. It's also partly about you know, the US and fears of US abandonment or lack of focus. And it's also about these three countries trying to understand each other better and do more together more generally. But when those press stories came out in India, framing it all about China, I know there was nervousness in Jakarta about Indonesia being seen to be part of some sort of new anti-China force. They're, they're really reluctant to be painted like that. So I think it's a very delicate balancing act. And Indonesia certainly has the potential to do more. Uh, but I think for the foreseeable future, the focus is really going to be on keeping things you know, going domestically, economically, and too many foreign entanglements, I think, risk upsetting that domestic balance. Now, tell us a little bit about Indonesia and ASEAN, because traditionally, Indonesia has played a, a leading role uh, even if it's leading from behind, as it likes to say, uh, within ASEAN. Um, Jokowi seems to have had less interest uh, to play that sort of active diplomacy. But one of the major achievements, uh, arguably, was in 2019 when he pushed the adoption of the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. How much of an achievement was that for Indonesian diplomacy? What does that say about precisely the issues you're talking about, uh, how Indonesia positions itself within both ASEAN and a larger Indo-Pacific region and in relation to the great powers that are increasingly at odds with each other? Well, I think this is really a story of both continuity and change. So there has been a lot of continuity in foreign policy terms from Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono's years. And while SBY and his foreign ministers, Hassan Wirayuda and then Martin Natalagawa, were much more sort of visibly active in the region, I don't think there, was a, there has been a fundamental shift in Indonesia's foreign policy wiring, right? So that, that, that independent and active stance really has remained the same. But it's more Jokowi's just shifted focus. He's personally not interested in giving those big formal diplomatic speeches. He's never attended a UN General Assembly in his first five years in office. So it's more a shift of his own emphasis. But to be fair, he's allowed his foreign minister, Retno Marsudi, to step up. I think the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific was much more her initiative than Jokowi's initiative. He's really quite impatient with the formalities of diplomacy, with, with ASEAN statements and the technical language that, that comes out in these documents. So I think it was really Retno's push, if you like. And it does show an Indonesian desire not to be left behind in this kind of narrative contest about the Indo-Pacific with many different countries coming up with their own framing of Indo-Pacific, whether it's a, a vision or a policy or a strategy or, or whatever you call it. So I think there is a desire in the Indonesian foreign ministry not to be left behind. But when you look at the content, if you like, of the ASEAN outlook, to my mind, there's not much there. It's really a restatement of those core ASEAN values of non-interference in others' domestic affairs, of peaceful resolution of disputes, and driving home this idea that ASEAN must remain central, whatever that means. So I think it's a kind of cry for relevance, if you like, from Indonesia, more than a change in emphasis from ASEAN. There's a reason. Um, diplomats from uh, Malaysia and Singapore have pointed out to me a few times why it's called an ASEAN outlook um, on the Indo-Pacific, because it's not an ASEAN policy. It's just an outlook. So I think there's not much there. But to be fair to my, my friends in the Indonesian foreign ministry, they say this is an evolving idea. It's an evolving document. And they say, watch this space later on. They're keen to try and find some way to keep 
the organization more relevant and for Indonesia to play this kind of leading from behind or leading from the middle, as some people confusingly call it, position. So I think that speaks to one of the many contradictions of Indonesia, this desire to have some sort of leadership role as far and away the biggest country in Southeast Asia, but not wanting to appear to be dominating the region either. Mm. Now let's turn back to uh, some of the kind of domestic politics that have afflicted President Jokowi. You write how there's really been such huge hopes placed in this outsider. This outsider has now become basically an insider in terms of how he has come to grips with elite politics in Indonesia, brought former adversaries into his big tent coalition, uh, taken on board military advisors to lead the pandemic response in, in terms of COVID-19. But what is your forecast for the next three years, which will end uh, the second term of Jokowi? What will be his legacy, do you think, of uh, 10 years in power? And perhaps most crucially, what do you think will follow uh, Jokowi? Will it be a return to normal? Will we see the same old dynastic politics reassert itself? Or will perhaps Jokowi and, and his immediate family uh, secure their own dynasty? I mean, this is really the million dollar question. Well, if you'd asked me about a year ago, um, I would have imagined that Jokowi would carry on focusing on the economy, make some solid but not overly impressive progress, and then maybe would you know look to to fade gently from the political scene as he became effectively a lame duck because Indonesian presidents have a two term limit, just like their counterparts in in the U.S. Um, but within the last year, Jokowi and his family made this decision to really look to build their own dynasty, which is a move that really depressed a lot of the civil society activists who were Jokowi's biggest boosters. They were the guys who believed, as, as one of them put, that Jokowi would you know, remove this octopus of oligarchy that was strangling the Indonesian people. Instead, uh, Jokowi's effectively got into bed with the octopus, uh, cuddled up with those tentacles. And in the last six months, his son and his son-in-law have entered politics. They're running in local elections due later this year, with his son looking to take Jokowi's own seat as the mayor of Solo. So I think this really changes how people see the president. We already knew that he'd you know, made many compromises with elite politicians. Um, but this is quite different because it shows he wants to leave a stronger legacy and he wants to keep his eye in the game, really, by having his son take on this role as well as his son-in-law. So I think it means we can expect him to play quite an important role looking to 2024, to the next election and the constellation of, of leaders that might emerge. Because just like Jokowi's got backing for his son, um, it's inevitable that other elite politicians are going to be looking to Jokowi um, to give them backing for their campaign. But in the end, it comes down to the Indonesian voters. And if we look to Indonesia's last president, SBY, he's tried to get his, his children into politics, that they are active, but they've never been very successful. And SBY has never had the influence that he wanted to have once he, he left office. So I think we have to see what Indonesian voters want to do. That's one of the great tensions, if you like, in Indonesian democracy that Jokowi really embodies. He was a really a champion of elections. He used the free and fair electoral system to go from nowhere to the presidency in just nine years. But he's been a poor guardian of democratic practice. But the political parties and the elites can't just sew everything up because they need to win 
the voters' approval in these free and fair elections. And I think that's the tension that he embodies, the promise he embodies. And I think we've also seen in his, in his leadership the limits of what one man can do to kind of bend a system that's very complex and going through a lot of you know growing pains. But the extent to which he, one man can bend that system to his will is really limited at the end of the day. Mm. And I wanted to end on the theme of, of contradictions, uh, because this is really the central thesis of your book. Uh, you argue that Jokowi embodies the fundamental contradictions of modern Indonesia. He's caught between democracy and authoritarianism, uh, openness and protectionism, Islam and pluralism. Um, and it strikes me that this is a, a, a very simple, but not necessarily Uh, simplistic uh, lens to be looking at Indonesia uh, through. Uh, some readers may find that not entirely satisfying, but in your book, you really criticize the kind of relentless search for monocausal explanations for Indonesia or indeed even you know the wider world. You spent more than 20 years trying to make sense of this country in various guises, uh, first as a student of Indonesian politics at SOAS, then as the FT's foreign correspondent in Jakarta, now from your comfortable armchair in Sydney as a policy analyst at Lowy Institute. How do you think your different perspectives have informed your understanding of the country and its contradictions? Um, and where do you stand on the spectrum of kind of hunt for, you know, journalism's simple and exaggerated stories versus academia's uh, really thirst for overarching theoretical frameworks? Well, I try to get out of my comfortable armchair whenever I can, when there isn't a pandemic that prevents me from traveling. I'm really the kind of analyst who needs to see things as well as study them to really make sense of it. And I think that speaks to my own background as, as a foreign correspondent, as well as someone who studied the history and politics of, of Southeast Asia, that I think I, I kind of bridge those different worlds. I need to go and interview people on the ground and, and see what's going on. And, and thankfully, Indonesia is such an open country that when you're there as, a, as an analyst and a journalist, you can get to interview everyone from the president on down. So it's, it's really quite fantastic to have that access. At the same time, I think my partial academic background has helped me to understand the framing and the history of Indonesia. And I think that's what you need to really make sense of things. It is a complex country, but every country that's so big is. And I think I'm trying to provide a framework for people to embrace the complexity and to learn more and love Indonesia more for what it is, rather than hoping it will be something else. And I think that's the problem with a lot of the journalistic coverage. It is too simplistic. You know, reading a lot of the stories, you get the impression that Indonesia is always about to be the next China economic boom story, or it's about to collapse. It's always about to become, you know, the next failed state, or there are natural disasters that are going to tear it apart. It will be the great, you know, middle class economic success story. I think reality is more complex. On the other hand, you know, the academics naturally go into their silos. And what I'm trying to do using a lot of journalistic work and a lot of academic work and my own experiences is pull those threads together to to portray a complex Indonesia that is actually understandable and relatable and is quite sympathetic. And it's this story, which I think Jokowi embodies of a country that's come through a lot. It's come out of nowhere, out of really the arbitrary limits of Dutch colonial exploitation. And it's a, it's a remarkable success story that the country has stayed together as it has up until now. There's a lot of potential, a lot of room to grow, but a lot of challenges. And I think we have to understand those complexities, not just wish them away, as I think happens. And we shouldn't write Indonesia off. We should try and, and learn more about it and understand it. And I think, as I argued at, at the beginning, Jokowi really ultimately embodies, I think, 
these contradictions. And by trying to learn a bit more about him, I think you learn more about the story of Indonesia and you'll have a better sense of, of where it's heading uh, for worse in some senses, but also, of course, for better. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note of uh, contradictions and perhaps cautious optimism for Indonesia's future, uh, Ben, let me thank you for this rich discussion. I'd also like to thank my colleague Jennifer Reinhardt for her assistance in the production of this episode. Thank you all for listening today. Please keep an eye on our social media channels for details of the next episode in our podcast series, and you'll find all previous Slow Institute COVIDcast episodes on the homepage of our website.